Hello everyone. Um, it's week two with our uh, video sermon series as we continue to struggle with the coronavirus. Um, we'll continue on going through Isaiah this way for as long as we have to. Um, and no matter what, I'll continue to put out videos for everybody. That way they can watch it instead of just listen to it. I know sometimes that helps with the ambiance. Um, still, uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. Um, and before we begin with this week's sermon, um, a little bit of a recap of what we've gone over the last few weeks. Um, the beginning of the chapter, we talked about the vineyard parable, in which case Isaiah was pronouncing this, uh, this landowner who had a vineyard, and he did all these things for the vineyard. He made it the best possible scenario for the vineyard to succeed, and yet it grew wild grapes. It grew these rotten, uh, basically, grapes. And... Everyone there would have been like, oh no, like how could this have happened? And Isaiah points the finger and said, hey, you're the wild grapes. God has done so much for you and yet you continue to turn away. Um, last week we then saw a way in which they did continue to turn away through their greed um, and through their um, debaucherous lifestyle as they continued to get drunk with wine and they continued to live in a way which was contrary to what God had intended for them. Um, now we're going to continue on to see a few more woes uh, and finish out this chapter, chapter 5. Um, I will warn everyone, it says it's, it's continuing to be judgments right now. It's continuing to show the people for who they really are. Um, so if it is a little bit of a darker sermon, it's not because, you know, I love dark sermons. It's because context. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. We're going to start with verses 18 and 19, which say, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as the cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come, that we might know it. Now Isaiah continues the critique against the people, and in some way the people respond to the critique and possibly the judgment. We notice how Isaiah begins the woe with those who are willingly falling into sin. It is not so much that they are falling into it. It's actually even more than that. It's that they are willingly sinning against God with their lives. Hence, they draw sin uh, as with cart ropes is what is written. We then see too in the response to the possible judgment. Instead of turning in repentance and faith, we find them mocking God. Throwing their fists in the air, so to speak. Daring him to respond. Instead of taking the response to their iniquity seriously, they welcome it with open arms. If ever we saw the evidence of human pride, it's right here. There is complete disrespect for God and his majesty with the people. So now we come to the second woe with verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What happens when individuals mock God and find a foundation other than him for their lives? The result is the next three woes, including the one we just uh, read. The first woe shows a people who are rejoicing in evil. We could call such a people unhinged, as Nietzsche once said of humanity without God. That which is evil they call good, and that which is good they call evil. They are essentially justifying their immorality, 
Despite God having set very clear parameters for their lives, they are willingly living outside of these parameters and claiming that what they do is good. But by what standard? That is the great question. Thus they are able to lie, cheat, and steal for themselves, and it is good because they declare it to be good. Yet the one who is pure, who is goodness itself, he finds it detestable. So, we continue on with verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. This third woe further represents this understanding. They are not seeking God for their wisdom, nor for their morality, for their lifestyles. Instead, they are merely looking to themselves to declare what is good, right, and how things ought to be discerned. They consider themselves above all else, including God, claiming their ways are better than God's ways. We now come to the next woe. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. This leads to the fourth woe, which deals with the lifestyle and where that wisdom leads to. Instead of men of honor and renown, they honor and renown are only those who are drinking and in debauchery. They have no claim to anything other than a life wasted in unimportant things. Meanwhile, the justice system is broken. Those who are guilty are declared innocent with a bribe. Can you imagine such a society in which the rich could break the law, but always get away with it? Such a society would be seen as grossly immoral. Yet this is what we find in their society, where the innocent ones are denied true justice. Meanwhile, those who are guilty get away with all of their crimes. The fruit of the vine is bitter. It is bitter indeed. We now come to verse 24. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. As with the previous woes found in this chapter, we now find God's response with the therefore statements. It is not that God is judging in a box. His judgments are made based upon the willful acts of the people. Such acts must be judged either for good or ill. If for good, then the repercussions according to the law are abundance, their joy. But if it's ill, then the repercussions in the law, there is judgment for their actions. What do we find? We find complete judgment against the people. The imagery is used to convey the destruction. We can imagine just how easily dry grass burns in fire. So it is with their own root, which is seen to be rotten, their blossoms to be like dust. Though they believe that their roots are firm, the result of their system of logic and belief is the complete opposite of what is good and therefore will be destroyed. How do we know this? Because of their rejection of God's law. The law which shows them the way of life, the way they can please and honor God, has been rejected by the people. 
They have sought their own way in order to live their lives, have sought their own morality, justice, and righteousness. They have despised God and his ways. This same God who is good, holy, just, and righteous. In rejecting his ways, they reject him. And in the process, reject all of these things as well. Now verse 25. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all of this anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. The second therefore deals more specifically with God's reaction to such a people. God is angry with them. Because of their injustice and their unrighteousness. As such, his hand is outstretched against them in judgment. Even today, we can see the results of an earthquake on a people. Um, They are capable of incredible amounts of death and destruction. So it is with the people. Nature will be used to judge the people for their sins. Nature belongs to God. And he will utilize it against the people in judgment. Now, whether this was the earthquake that hit the region during the reign of Isaiah or a potential natural disaster is unknown. All we can take from this is that God's sovereignty in the situation, especially when it comes to nature. And indeed, his sovereignty is over this. They have dared God in his anger, and the result is judgment. Even with what has come, his hand is still outstretched against them. He is still preparing to bring further destruction on them because of their impotence, uh, because of their pride, because of their refusal to acknowledge God's greatness. Now we'll go through the rest of the verses for the end of the chapter. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary. None stumbles. None none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose. Not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey, and they carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. It is not only nature which obeys the Lord. All the nations of the earth ultimately fall under his sovereignty. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for their injustice, unrighteousness, and immorality, so his own people will be judged for theirs. God will accomplish this through nature, but also through other nations. These nations, they do not delay in their coming. They come quickly and readily to the call. They do not weary in their pursuit. They prepare themselves, ever vigilant in the face of their foe. Their arrows are sharpened for destruction to rain down on the people. Indeed, their bows are already set into the ready, ready to loose those arrows on their enemies. Their horses and their chariots of war are ready for the battle. They will not be turned aside. Instead, they will overwhelm the people. Like a whirlwind, they will come upon the enemies, the very people who God claimed to be his own. 
The imagery of the lion is one who is young. This does not mean a small lion, but a lion who is in its prime. It roars loudly, its muscles in tune for the kill, for the feast. None can stop such a lion when its prey has been captured. It will carry it away to be devoured. This army will roar like the lion. It will come and it will devour. Those who look upon the land will see this massive army coming against the people of God. And all that they will see is the coming devastation on the people. There will only be darkness and distress. And in a most sorrowful statement, the light will be darkened by the judgment which will fall on the people. Alright, so the main point of these verses are to establish the guilt of the people. Instead of seeking a strong foundation of morality, justice, righteousness, and the law of God, the people have chosen instead to define what is good themselves. As such, immorality is pursued, injustice is praised, and unrighteousness is glorified among the people. This is seen even more so through their rejection of that God, of the God of all who is moral, just, and righteous by his own holy character, which is seen through his law. In such rejection, they have no grasp of what is good, and thus they live worthy of judgment which is to come. Alrighty, so I entitled this sermon, Unhinged Morality, Justice, and Righteousness. Um, And the reason why I chose that for this particular sermon is because of uh, a sermon I preached back in Genesis 6 at the very uh, beginning of the chapter, and I think I'll put a link to it below. Um, basically, in that sermon, I discussed uh, the madman by Nietzsche. Um, and the reason why is because it shows a very interesting story about what happens when humanity rejects God. And I think Nietzsche saw that better than most people. Um, Regardless, though, that's the reason why I entitled this. That's why I'm going to actually want you to, if you want to listen to that sermon as well, go ahead. They're going to tie in together in certain ways. I'm not going to reread The Madman by any means, um, but it, it is all about morality. It's about, all about how we live apart from God and how that doesn't actually work. So let's go ahead into it. Within the scriptures, we find a common thread permeate all of humanity. From the garden to the grave, uh, the key temptation has been pride. Human pride in wanting to be like God in the garden, to do it all on our own, that we don't need God. It's the great problem humanity has as we continue to seek self and trust self more than anything else. We often find ourselves, though, when we do this, completely and utterly lost. While we could critique the ancients for their own failures in this, the truth is their story is very similar to our own. In our modern world, we are not less likely to fall into the same trap. Whether within the Christian faith or outside of it, oftentimes we find ourselves trusting far more in ourselves and our own abilities to discern how to live in this world than trusting in God who has revealed himself to us through his word. Thus, in our modern day, we have seen things arise which are blatantly contrary to what we find in the scriptures when it comes to morality, justice, and righteousness. That is, we find ourselves siding more and more with those in the past who were moral and unjust and unrighteous rather than those who were moral, just, and righteous. 
What has caused this to happen? The answer is, again, human pride. We have decided that these concepts are meant to be defined by human means rather than anything else. But what happens when you have a bunch of individuals who are claiming morality and justice and righteousness are to be defined by humans? Well, you have a society that can't define these concepts because there's no absolute. But instead, they are subjective to the humans themselves. A good example of this, and one that many philosophers like to quote and like to to bring to the forefront, is let's say Nazi Germany. During the reign of Hitler, there were many who believed that they were doing uh, what they were doing to the Jews and to the gypsies and all the peoples were perfectly acceptable. They would even call slaughtering the millions moral, just, and righteous. They would call putting men, women, and children into extermination camps good. I know many of us balk at the idea of these things being good. There are many of us today who would say, no, that is awful. It's the exact opposite of good. But how can we come to this conclusion? How can we say to the Nazis that their understanding was bad? If humans decide what is good and in the process decide what is moral, just, and righteous, then can we really critique those who disagree with our definitions? The answer is, of course not. There is no way for us to be able to say what they believed to be good was really bad because they could just as easily say to us that what we believe is really bad in their way is good. Now we've come to an unfortunate conclusion, haven't we? in which we have no concept of an absolute goodness because we're all defining good and bad through our own eyes. There is no constant, no grounding, nothing to hinge us to what is actually good. So in our culture today, we see the ramifications to such an understanding. Morality, justice, righteousness. What are these concepts? Who can tell us what they are, what they even mean. Do they have any significance? If so, what significance? Are there moral laws? Is there right and wrong? Who defines them? Because there are no real answers to these questions. Most live as though the answers don't really matter. They've accepted the cultural norm when it comes to these things. You do your thing, I'll do mine. The question is, is such a culture sustainable? Absolutely not. Consider it. Imagine an individual is brought into court for some heinous act. Perhaps this individual was torturing humans, young and old. The evidence is completely stacked against the individual. He, he was a sadist after all and recorded all of his evil experiments, all of his tortures. He has confessed to it and without any coercion. When asked if he permitted these crimes against fellow humans, he responded, of course I did. When asked what his defense is for such acts, he responds, there is nothing wrong or bad with anything that I have done. In fact, what I have done is actually good in my mind. What do we say of a jury who decides not to convict this man? 
What will we say to the judge who agrees with this premise? What if they all ask themselves, well, what right do we have to critique his morality, his justice, his righteousness? Many of us would be quite angry over such a response. The question is, why are we angry? This individual and the court only take the view most in our culture have to its natural conclusion. If we are unable to take it to its natural conclusion, then what good is having it? One would argue a better view should be sought than the one we have presented. One in which we recognize there is goodness which we ought to seek. But this would require us to admit something about ourselves that we cannot be the lawmakers. It would require us to admit that we would have to willingly accept another, one who could rightly distinguish between good and bad, right and wrong. It would require us to kneel before such an individual when it comes to their holiness as compared to our own unholiness. It would require us to accept and acknowledge that God does exist, and that his laws, his ways lead to what is good, moral, just, and righteous. Not because these concepts are something he chooses, nor because these concepts are separate from him in some way, but because he is by very nature, his very character, he is good. He is just, he is moral and righteous. As such, to one who is these things, he is capable of showing humanity what these things look like, as well as giving us a law to follow and obey, telling us what we ought to do in order to attain these things. Unfortunately for all of us, we have a problem, and it's something we've already talked about, and that's our own pride. We would rather say, I know better than God. We would rather say, Our culture knows better than God. We would rather shake our fists to the sky and say, Come, show us the mouth of hell. We dare you. Because just as with the ancients, we too are suspect to our sin. We willingly bind ourselves to sin and willingly blind ourselves to the goodness that is God because we would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. So our own human brokenness leads us to our own demise. And we continue to justify ourselves and continue to trust in ourselves despite the corruption we all experience. This corruption leads to a world we find today where morality, justice, and righteousness are ancient truths which we could all attain at one time but cannot attain anymore. Why? Because the worldview of the culture has shifted from one which these concepts were founded in, which is God, to one where they are found in each person. When God is taken out of the equation, then all that is left is stardust. And if we are only the remains of stars, then we have no greater purpose or meaning than anything else in the universe. Yet many continue to play the game. The atheist or agnostic who claims that there is no purpose lives as though they have a purpose. 
We set up these social justice schemas because we want to believe it matters. Not realizing that without God there is no purpose to any of it. That we are all playing a big game in which the only true conclusion is a sad nihilism where nothing matters, not even us. This is why these ancients and wonderful concepts have lost so much weight in our own world. Why they seem unhinged because they are unhinged. And why we need to recognize that when immorality, injustice, and unrighteousness reign in the world, then there will only be judgment for us who so willingly bind ourselves to these false beliefs. Sadly, this is exactly where Isaiah leaves us at this point. There is no hope. We deserve everything that comes against us. We deserve the judgment which God has in store for humanity because we have so willingly been led down this dark path. We have let our pride so greatly control us that we wouldn't have it any other way. Like those of the day who said, Come, let us see this judgment and let us see what you will do. So we say the same thing to God every single day. We do the same when we too shake our fists toward the sky, having no true expectation of a repercussion for all the ungodly and unholy ways we have lived. So what more can we do than shake, shiver, and fear at the coming judgment against humanity? We think it has gotten to be its worst. Wait until all of Sheol opens its mouth to accept us into death. But what can we say? Even if all hell should swallow all of us up, our response to God would likely be the same. Let us see what you can do. God will show us. And we will only have ourselves to blame for our sins. So, Isaiah in this particular passage ends here. Chapter 5 is one that starts with so much hope, but then it ends without any hope. In fact, we even see it with the very last verse where the light is dimmed by the clouds. Now, we could leave it at that. But the truth is Isaiah doesn't leave it at that either. Because he had to wrestle with the same question. Is there grace? Can this stuff be overcome? Now we'll get into that next week. For today, though, we need to get into the gospel because it's in the gospel that we see all of this come to be. And in the gospel, we find all of our origins are found in God. He is the first cause. It is from him that all of the universe has come into existence. And all of the stars in the sky and all the galaxies. And we ourselves. And despite all the beauty of everything around us that we see in nature, the truth is, is that you and I, humanity, we're the image bearers of God. This means that every human being intrinsically has worth, sanctity, and dignity. Every single human. And this is a beautiful thing. It's one that we have to remember about ourselves, that we were created good. 
And that no matter what, humanity has that imprint on them. But here's the question. What happens when we sin? Well, we see what happens. From Adam and Eve onward, death. Because there is only judgment for sin. And that judgment is always death. And because we so willingly sin against our God, because we so willingly turn our focus away from him and his ways, that we look at ourselves and say that we are better than God. Because we do this on a constant basis where we continue to say, God, I don't need you. And then we run headlong into immorality and we think that it's right. And we justify our works over and over and over again. The problem is though is that when we face judgment, we're not going to have a judge who doesn't look at us and doesn't see us for what we are. The problem is we're going to have a God who we are comparing ourselves to. And who must compare himself and his judgments to what we are. So for every lie, for every time we've stolen, for every time we've shaken our fist against God, we have to have judgment against us. And God, if he is truly just, if he is truly good, then he must condemn us. We must face this day. The people of Israel, they weren't the only ones. All humanity has to at one point. Now again, Isaiah left it right there. I'm not going to. Because the truth is, is that God did do something. We're going to find out more about what God did too later in Isaiah. But for right now, we're going to talk about what God has done. And that sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Because Jesus came and he lived. And he died and he rose again in time, space, history, and flesh we find redemption. And do you know what we find? And this is very important for all of us. The weight of sin is great. The weight of judgment is great. But the weight of God's glory is greater. And he is very glorified through our redemption. So that those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and his son, all of their sins all of their guilt are stripped away. And in replace is his glory, is his righteousness. And it's through Jesus Christ that we are able to understand what is good, what is moral, just, and righteous. And while we can never be Jesus, we can follow him. And where is he leading us? He's leading us into glory. And so all the things that happen here on earth, as we make our choices day by day, and as we seek to honor God, you know, that's the best we can do. Every day to seek to honor Jesus Christ. Every day to follow by loving God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what Jesus said, it all hangs on. And how we understand it all is through those. So I encourage you, while we continue to do this video sermon series, and while we continue to struggle with this global pandemic, perhaps even a judgment, 
I don't understand why we can't call it that. It pretty much is. What did Christ do in judgment? He bore it and he overcame it. So when it comes to us and when it comes to our own calling, it's just a trial. And if we have faith in Christ, we will overcome. Not because I'm so strong or you're so strong. We're not strong enough. We'll overcome because Jesus overcame. So, my encouragement to you, this final encouragement is become hinged. Hinge yourself to absolute goodness found in God. Find justice. Find morality. Find righteousness. You can find it in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you so much for reminding us what judgment looks like. Because the truth is, Lord, is that we are worthy of judgment. We are a people who deserve death. Not only death here, but also death eternally. And yet we find in your son, Jesus Christ, redemption. And so, Lord, let us remember where we have come from. Let us remember that we are part of sinful people. Let us remember that it is not by our own means that we are saved, but by the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, let us always reflect back onto the judgment which we should have. So that way we can be thankful for the grace we have received. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. God bless everyone. Have a wonderful day.